Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church. You can find more great content like this online at citylight.church. We are in the middle of a series called When I Met Jesus. We are looking at uh, different times that Jesus encountered people throughout the scripture. Uh, When he encountered them, how did their life change? What happened? And so we've looked at all sorts of different encounters. Uh, We've looked at when Jesus uh, met Jacob and wrestled with Jacob. What happened there? We've looked uh, last week when Jesus met Judas and Peter and when Judas didn't change. Uh, we are going to be looking next week, uh, Don Redden, uh, who is the pastor of our Glenelg location, is going to be coming and he's going to be preaching for us when Jesus met the rich young ruler. Uh, but this week, we are going to be looking at something that is at, at the very core of our faith. Uh, uh, there's a, an episode or, or a time in Christianity that is really... Uh, Uh, central and core, and that is the crucifixion of Jesus. And so today we're going to be looking at when Jesus met the criminals who were crucified either side of him. Will you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are are so good to us, and we thank you that you have given us your word. And we pray that as we open up uh, the book of Luke tonight and look at this account of Jesus' crucifixion and the interactions that he had that you will speak to us by your spirit, um, that your word will come alive to us, Lord, and that you would allow it to speak to us and change our hearts and lives. Uh, We pray that uh, your word would come through and all else would fade away. Amen. So as I said, this week we're going to be looking at the, uh, the criminals who were crucified with Jesus. Traditionally, this uh, episode in the Gospel of Luke is called The Thief on the Cross. Um, but I'm going to kind of lay aside that label because uh, there's nowhere in the Scripture that actually says that the criminal was a thief. Very likely, he's probably a revolutionary. Um, and also, there were two of them. So probably better put, it's the, the criminals uh, on the crosses, not the thief on the cross. There was two of them, probably not, probably, maybe one of them had done some stealing, uh, but it wasn't just for stealing, they're probably a revolutionary. Um, what we want to ask today, though, is uh, or what this kind of really addresses, the questions that arise from this, firstly, are what, what works? What works are required for salvation? What must we do to be saved? And another question for us today is why did one criminal respond with faith? and the other was scorn. So what we have in this episode is we have both of these men crucified either side of Jesus, both were suffering. Both had had nails driven through the soft parts of their body. Both of them were slowly asphyxiating on a cross. Both had been condemned. Both had an encounter with Jesus. Both were receiving the just punishment for their crime. Both saw the the testament of the sign that was nailed over Jesus' head, mockingly perhaps, but this is the king of the Jews. But only one responds to this situation with faith. The other responds with scorn. So tonight, uh, this afternoon, we're going to open up Luke chapter 23 from verse 32. Uh, it's going to be on the screen. If you have an app, feel free to go for that. There's Bibles in the pews if you want to grab one of them. Or if you uh, like to carry around a Bible as well and you happen to have one on you, uh, feel free to use that one too. Uh, all translations, let's go for it. Uh, I'm going to be reading from the ESV. 
So Luke chapter 23, verse 32. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him, that's Jesus, and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they, that's the soldiers, cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by, watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself. If he is Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of of the Jews. And then we meet our criminals. One of the criminals who were hanged, who were hanged, railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. So for a little bit of context, uh, I don't want to presume that everyone here has uh, grown up in or around church. Uh, where have we found this account? Where have we found this story? Well, to just kind of give you the universe in 20 seconds, uh, humanity was made by God. Humanity rejects God. And that leads to sin and death and suffering. And Jesus comes down from heaven and enters into human history to do something about it, to help. He is born. He lives. He starts his ministry, does miracles, preaches sermons, gives teaching. He is betrayed, like we looked at last week for those who were here. And he is, right now, being crucified. And he's crucified between two criminals, as was prophesied in the Old Testament. It was prophesied in Isaiah 53, 12, uh, 700 years before the birth of Jesus, that he would be put to death with the wicked. And so Jesus was, was crucified between two guilty people. Crucifixion sometimes, sometimes could take days. Jesus was there for not days, for hours. So in a crucifixion, what uh, they would do is they would uh, drive generally nails or giant, kind of when we think nails, we're not thinking like Bunnings, we're thinking railway stake-sized nails uh, through the soft parts of your arm here and here 
and it affixed you to the cross. And it wasn't necessarily, uh, it wouldn't, wasn't the bleeding from that that would actually kill you. Uh, a crucifixion is a death by asphyxiation. Because of the weight of your body hanging there uh, and what it's doing to your insides, it's actually, you asphyxiate, you can't breathe uh, properly. And so it's actually a death by asphyxiation. Uh, what they would often do, you may have heard the um, expression mercy seat, uh, and sometimes there would be like a peg or a bit of a seat that they would put um, kind of either under your feet or just kind of where you could kind of sit on it and get a little bit of relief. But all that would really serve to do would be to extend the crucifixion. You'd, you'd be there for longer. Uh, and so you can imagine, uh, and what we need to kind of understand and with the context of this is that uh, for any of these people to have a conversation, uh, for Jesus to, to meet with the criminals and talk to them, it would have been a lot of effort. All of the words were laboured. They're, they're literally kind of choking or like asphyxiating to death during the conversation. And so we have during this time, we have the, the, the soldiers and the religious leaders, the authorities mocking Jesus. And then we have the, the first criminal who joins in. It says uh, here in verse 39, one of the criminals who were, who were hanged railed against him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. So the first criminal joins the soldiers in their mocking. What do we know about this guy? Uh, not a lot, to be honest. Now, we don't want to go out on a limb and say we know things that we don't know, but we can maybe infer some things or guess some things. Uh, and he may have genuinely believed Jesus to be the Christ at some point, maybe, uh, and just wanted to kind of use him. He may, in fact, have been a revolutionary himself. Uh, he was being put to death uh, by the Roman Empire, and a common form of uh, execution for revolutionaries was crucifixion. They would crucify the revolutionaries as a warning to any other revolutionaries who'd want to come after them and kind of try and overthrow the government. Why was he railing against Christ? Perhaps he genuinely thought that Christ may have been the Messiah. Perhaps he was confused at why, this, why he wasn't saving him. Perhaps it was just because he was in pain. How much do you know that it's actually harder to be nice when you're in pain? I don't know, um, I probably don't want to throw all of us in it, but if there are any wives here... Uh, have you ever, wives, tell me if this is true or not, uh, is there such a thing as a man cold? Like, women get colds and they press on, but men get colds and it's like the end of the world. <laughs> um, some of us can't deal when we're in pain or discomfort. Some of us can't even deal with the pain of needing a sandwich, let alone the pain of crucifixion. Some of us get hangry. <laughs> the word excruciating actually literally means from the cross. The, the pain was, of crucifixion was so much that they actually needed to invent a word for it. So kind of from the Latin, ex, from, uh, excruciating, from the, the crucifixion, from the cross. And so the first criminal responds to Jesus out of pain, out of frustration, out of disappointment. And then verse 40, the second criminal says, but the other rebuked him, saying, do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and indeed we justly? 
For we are receiving the due reward for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. So what would cause uh, one criminal to respond with mocking and with scorn? And perhaps many of us may have responded the same way. I think the surprise for us isn't necessarily how the first criminal responds. The surprise for us is how the second one responds. The first one, that can kind of be expected. It's the second response that throws us off our guard. Why does he respond differently? I mean, we have no indication from the Bible that he knew Jesus before this. He may have heard of Jesus, as the first one had. Very likely he'd heard of Jesus, but he didn't necessarily know Jesus. And yet, this man, this criminal who did not know Jesus, his theology is better than most or many Christians I know. What we're going to see as we unpack what comes next, this criminal who may probably never met Jesus in person before, he has great theology. And it must have been a work of the Holy Spirit in him that did that. So as we unpack this, as we walk through what he says together, I want us to, to listen to his theology of God, of mankind, of sin, of suffering, and of salvation. It's, it's Holy Spirit-inspired. In fact, I think um, there are many Christians who could learn a lot of things from the criminal on the cross about God and, and sin and suffering and salvation and grace. So I want to I draw out for us just six things that we can uh, see and learn from how this criminal responds to Jesus. The first is this. The second criminal, he is not sucked in by the other criminal's rant against Jesus. The criminal was not hanging on the cross saying to Jesus, God, if you are so great and loving, why did you let this happen? Or God, if you are so great and loving, why don't you do... The first criminal says, you're the Messiah, save us. Get us off the cross. The first man presumed to tell God what he ought to do in the situation to prove his divinity. If you are the Christ, get us off the cross. And I think that, that we too, like, let's own this, me as well, right? We can, we can all kind of think that God ought to act in a certain way. If you are God, why don't you... Dot, dot, dot. You kind of hear this maybe expressed in a different way. Uh, and this could be a conversation that you've either had with yourself or you've had with someone else. And it, kind of the phrase is this, oh, oh I, I can't believe in a God who would insert phrase. I can't believe in a God who would send people to hell. Or I can't believe in a God who would, who would define marriage as between opposite genders. Or I can't believe in a God who would allow suffering to exist. I can't believe in a God who wouldn't give me a girlfriend. Even. As though God had to do what we thought he ought to do for him to still be God. 
I mean, we, we can't use the existence of suffering and evil as a polemic argument against God. Rather, we need to humbly submit to him as God. What the second criminal understands is that we, we cannot worship a God of our own creation. We need to worship the one true God of creation. If we say that we can't believe in a God who would do such and such, all of a sudden we've placed ourselves as an authority over God. As though he had to submit to our morality. As though he had to submit to our idea of how things should go. What did the second thief do instead of this? Instead of demanding God act in the way he thought he should act, he feared God. It says verse 40, but the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? The second criminal, God was real to him. He looked to him for wisdom. He the creation should come under and respect the creator. Proverbs 9 verse 10 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So what we see is that the first criminal and the soldiers, they didn't fear God, they instead mocked God. The second criminal, although he was hanging on the cross and Jesus was hanging there next to him, he knew he was in the presence of power. To fear God is the beginning of wisdom. So one criminal decided he should order, tell God how God ought to behave. The second criminal respected and feared God. Now, for some of us, it might be this, uh, this thing going off in your head, but hang on. Isn't God meant to be loving? Why fear? Like, why are you telling us to fear God? Uh, God is love. Perfect love drives out all fear. I believe that's in the Bible somewhere. What are you saying? Is this, how does this work? What do we mean by we, when we say he feared God? Do you not fear God? I personally, I, uh, I, haven't been, um, I haven't been surfing since before uh, my son was born and probably a little while before that as well. So I used to enjoy going surfing like a couple of times a week. And the reason, one of the many reasons apart from you know, the thrill of riding the board and um, all that, uh, sharks do still scare me, but the thrill of riding the board, one of the reasons I, I would do that, I don't know if you've ever had the experience of of being out in surf or being out in waves that are really just a little bit too big than what you should actually be enjoying. Has anyone, anyone brave soul willing to put up their hand and say, yes, I've been, out in, I've been out in the surf and the surf has been beyond me. Like, I should really paddle in right now, um, but probably around the back, because if I go through there, I'm going to die. Uh, I, I even now, to this day, I enjoy standing in the ocean being pounded by waves. Like, have you, have you, you shouldn't do this because of lightning. It's a really bad idea to go out in the surf during a storm because of lightning. But have you ever been in the water or near the water during a storm or a storm surge, even if you've sat on the beach and, and watched it? Now, I'm going to get a little bit too poetic for some of our you know, theologicons here, uh, but 
But have you felt the, the power of the wave? Or perhaps if you have been in the right location, um, if, the, if the thunder has been right above you, have you felt the boom of thunder in your chest as the thunderclap goes off? Have you felt that? Has anyone felt that? All right. Or perhaps you've, you've been camping in the desert and you've, you've looked up at the sky and you have seen the multitudes of stars in the sky at night. I mean, here in the city, you'll see a few. It's still very impressive. But drive to the outback, go camping, look up at the stars, and you will be blown away. Have you been camping in the desert and looked up at the sky and felt your insignificance? If nature can inspire this sense of smallness in us, this sense of being out of control, this sense of something beyond me is mastering me, be it the waves or the thunder. All of that is tiny in comparison to its creator. We talk about God's love, and we should talk about God's love, but God's love is a good thing precisely because he is powerful. Precisely because you should be feared. I mean, it's, it's nice. I mean, I, okay, Just come with me now on a journey through time and space. If your teddy bear came to life, right? Just imagine your childhood dreams came through and your teddy bear comes to life. Uh, it's nice that your teddy bear loves you and, you know, gives you a hug at night. But that teddy bear's love will not do much when the robber breaks in. He'll throw fluff at him, Right? God's love is, good, is a good thing because he is powerful enough to be feared. I want to challenge you that if the Jesus that you treasure is the Norwegian man with a blow-dried haircut, good luck when Satan, sin, and death come for you. Good luck. Because he's going to be running. The fear of the Lord is a good thing because if he is not fearsome, he's not able to save. He's not all-powerful. In fact, the Jesus that I think we should worship is the real Jesus, but we have a picture of Jesus in, in Revelation chapter 1 from verse 14. It says this, The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. So I imagine like bright his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he, had, he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Norwegian Jesus eat your heart out, right? Right? Jesus is fearsome. Jesus is fierce. And why I think that it's good for us to realize and, and the soldier realized that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom is because you may or may not believe in this and if you're a particularly macho, you're going to want to fight me on this, but we all fear 
something. What do you fear? Perhaps you fear shame. Perhaps you fear failure. Perhaps you fear death. Perhaps you fear the opinions of others. Perhaps you fear not living up to mum and dad's expectations. Even if you're older, perhaps even if your parents have passed away, I've known from talking to my parents and from talking to other older people, the voices of your mum and dad, they're still in your head, they still live with you. Their expectations are still there. What you fear and what you live for is, is what has power in your life. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom because he alone is truly powerful and he alone is truly all-loving and all-good. What should you fear? What should you allow to control you? The Lord, because he alone is all-loving and all-good and all-powerful. The fear of the Lord means that we're not fearing other much lesser things. I don't want lesser fears to grip and control my life. I want a fear that makes me run to God, finding my shelter in Him. I want a fear of the Lord that that makes me run to him and trust him in the midst of the storm and stands in awe of his amazing grace. I want a fear of the Lord that makes me let go of my grip on all other things so that I can grasp him tighter. It's the kind of fear, the fear of the Lord is the fear that chases away all other fears. When we see God for who he is, how powerful he is, how loving he is, how good he is, how gracious he is, and ultimately how fearsome he is, it drives out the other fears. To fear God is to give him ultimate authority and to recognize his ultimate power. The second criminal rightly says, fear God. And then he admits his wrongdoing and he accepts his punishment as just. Verse 41, he says, And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. If you are being crucified, I think that all sense of pretense has gone out the window. Uh, It was not uncommon to be crucified naked. Or in very little, usually naked, sometimes maybe a loincloth. Uh, women would usually get crucified facing the other way, probably still naked, but at least you know, there's a little bit of less shame for them. If you are being crucified, there is no pretense anymore. He didn't want to save face anymore. His life was literally open and laid bare in, in every sense. We too have, have times when, when we are, uh, are naked and maybe you have been you know, like actually physically naked uh, and people have seen you when you didn't want to be seen and, and that's an embarrassing thing. But also here I'm kind of more talking about like people have seen your mess, your brokenness, your sinfulness, your sinful parts, 
your shameful parts that you wanted to cover up. And I want to say that for most of us, we like to pretend or we like to act or live like we don't have any of these parts. We deny that they exist and we don't let them be seen. For this criminal, there was no longer any pretense. He came knowing he was a sinner, knowing that Jesus knew his mess, his brokenness and his sin, and there was no hiding it anymore. He didn't pretend he didn't have sin. He said, we are being justly condemned. When I was in school, I very rarely got in trouble. And uh, this wasn't because I didn't do anything wrong. I had mastered the art of blame shifting. I was very good at it. I remember getting in trouble in school and managing to make all the culpability somebody else's fault. Why were you talking to such and such in the middle of my lecture? Oh, well, they were asking me this and I didn't want to respond and blame shift. Or why were you behind the out-of-bounds thing? Oh, well, I saw the other kids were there and I went to go get them because I knew they shouldn't be there. Like, has anyone else, is this just me that's a wicked sinner? Uh, no, just, just me, all right. This is just a confessional now, okay. Um, but realistically, what I was doing was covering my own sin, covering my own brokenness. I wasn't confessing it, I wasn't admitting it, I wasn't dealing with it. What the criminal didn't do, hanging on the cross, he didn't hang on the cross and say, I'm hanging here because my parents didn't love me enough. It's my genetics. We're just angry people. You know what? It's society. If the Roman Empire didn't exist, I wouldn't have to rally against them. It's just my lot in life. You know, perhaps all of those things may have been true to a point. But he takes it upon himself and he owns it. The truth is, for you and for me, your circumstances, my circumstances, may have put us in a position. They may have put you in a particular situation when you sinned or when you did the wrong thing. But we are actually all still responsible for our own actions. We are not simply victims. Some of us like to downplay and deny and blame shift and we place ourselves in the role as victim. I didn't get enough hugs as a kid and so I punched people and I act out. I didn't have parents who were very well off and so I developed a habit early of stealing and I've carried that through with me for the rest of my life. You know, I got away with telling small lies as a child and my parents never called me up on it, so now I just lie about big stuff, just kind of my pattern that they established for me. Or perhaps if you're Adam, you say, the woman that you gave me made me do it. Kind of, we've been doing this for years, guys. What the criminal doesn't do is blame shift, downplay, deny, victim of Roman oppression, just fighting the man. He instead takes responsibility 
owns his sin and comes before Jesus with it all bad. I don't want to downplay any concerns that you may have. Like there are genuine things in people's lives where you have been handed a raw deal. You have started like at the back of the field. You know, you, you've started and, and, and the life, the, the, the hand of cards you were dealt, it's not a royal flush, but it deserves to be flushed. You know, you've, you've been handed a really bad lot in life. And what I want to say is that that means that People should come alongside you and love you and help you and support you and, and, and get you care. But what it does not mean is that you have an excuse for your sin. All of us are still responsible for ourselves. And admitting you are a sinner is actually hard because it requires humility. Some people say, oh, Christianity is easy because you just kind of say, well, uh, Jesus, you take it and now I don't have to deal with it myself. But actually admitting that you are wrong, stopping the blame shifting, stopping the victimization and saying, oh, I'm just the victim here, requires humility and it's actually hard. And so the criminal, he says, we are not perfect, but Jesus is. And in so doing, he, he recognized Jesus' righteousness. He says, but this man, I don't actually imagine he motioned because he was kind of stuck. He said, this man, that's a bit of really dark, bad humor, so don't laugh. Um, this man has done nothing wrong. Jesus is worthy to be worshipped. Jesus is worthy, worthy to be followed and made much of. It is, it is his very righteousness that this, the man speaks of. It's that very righteousness that will make his death on the cross effective. And, and so by it, by that death, we can be seen as righteous in God the Father's sight. It's Jesus' sinlessness that enables him to be our saviour. When he substitutes himself for us, taking our penalty, our shame, our sin, and instead giving us the gift of his righteousness. And what's so amazing about this is that now having a right standing in front of God is not based on your own performance. And that is incredibly freeing. For the Christian, our sense of self, our sense of worthiness, our sense of righteousness before God, it doesn't come from our performance. It comes from Jesus' righteousness being given to us. Imagine that for a moment, imagine with me if you had to maintain your own righteousness. Like imagine if you became a Christian, Jesus saved you and your slate was wiped clean, you became righteous, uh, but then you kind of had to maintain that. If, if you had to maintain your own righteousness, your own goodness, your own right standing before God, um, who would even get out of bed in the morning? 
You're like, well, I'm pulling the covers up, and if I don't stick my little toe out, I can't sin, right? So I'm just going to stay here where it's safe. Uh, oh, no, but if I don't get up, now I'm lazy and slothful, and I've not done the good things God set out for me to do, and damn it, now I'm sin. Having gift righteousness, having the righteousness of Jesus as our righteousness frees us to walk with boldness. Because if we had to rely on ourselves for our own righteousness, if we had to rely on ourselves to keep our righteousness, we would fail miserably. But the freedom that comes from our righteousness being in Jesus, our right standing with God being in Jesus, is that it's not about what we do, it's about what he has done. And so the criminal admits his own sin, confesses the righteousness of Jesus. And then he recognizes Jesus as kingdom and Jesus as king. It says in the end of 42, and he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. One of the biggest differences between the first criminal and the second is that the first criminal was looking to Jesus for his utility. He was looking to to Jesus for what he could use him for, what he could get from him. Jesus, get us off the cross. The second man was looking to Jesus to worship him as Lord and King, not simply for what he could get from Jesus. The first man was saying, save me. And the second was saying, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Too many of us want Jesus the lifeboat and not Jesus the captain. Too many of us want Jesus for what he can do for us and not Jesus for his authority as King and Lord. We want the rubber ducky Jesus we can ride through the waves of life and not the lion of Judah who roars and mountains tremble. To come to Jesus, and this may be challenging for some of us, to come to Jesus is not just to accept his offer of salvation. It's actually to recognize his lordship and his kingly authority over the universe, the world, and even your own life. Your wants, your desires, your future, your past, your present. The first criminal was looking to Jesus for what Jesus could do for him simply. Just get me off the cross. The second said, King Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. 
He asks humbly and boldly. And Jesus responds in love. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. This second criminal is one of the, 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 the test studies in the Bible, one of the, the test cases for salvation by grace alone. What did this man do to earn salvation but throw himself at the mercy of the king? confess that he was Lord, confess his sin. Some people might come to us and say, you know, to be saved uh, means that you have to be baptised in in a particular church or a particular uh, denomination or with a particular group. Well, this guy wasn't baptised. And Jesus said today, you'll be with me in paradise. Some people say that to be saved, yes, you come to Jesus, but then you have to kind of do some good works. I mean, this guy, he didn't kind of sneakily get off the cross, uh, go and help some widows and then put himself back up there, right? Saved by grace alone. This, the witness of, the, of this criminal is that our salvation is alone in Christ. We add nothing to it. The strength and the power of our salvation is in Jesus, not in us. His salvation was not in his own goodness, his own doing. It was simply grace and faith. Faith in Jesus as Lord and King and Saviour given to him by grace. And the strength and power for all of this is, is in Jesus. Jesus is holy and blameless. And he gifts that to us through faith. When we come to Jesus, do we come humbly? Do we come acknowledging his lordship? To become not seeking what we can get from him, but giving ourselves to him out of reverence and fear for who he is. Not fear that sends us running from him, but the fear that sends us running to him. Do we listen to others and sometimes even our own hearts that say, I cannot believe in a God who would or we do listen to the creator of the universe who gets to define morality and reality for us. I want to encourage us this week to, to read back and to, to listen back to the words of Luke about the criminals on the cross. In it we see Christ's goodness to us, his mercy to us, through nothing that we have done and simply through his love and goodness to us. Let's pray. 
Father, we thank you that you are so good and loving to us. We have done nothing to deserve it. We come to you empty-handed, not able to save ourselves, not able to lift a finger for ourselves, but we come humbly to you, asking that you would save us by your grace through your love and goodness to us. And we pray we would be reminded by the account of these criminals that we can bring nothing to the party. We bring nothing to our salvation excepting the sin that makes it necessary. And we pray that you would enable and allow uh, that truth to fill our hearts with gladness about all you have done for us. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church. We hope you found it helpful and we'd love for you to share this message with others. For more great content, more information about City Light Church or to donate to the work of City Light Church, visit us online at www.citylight.church.